Good morning. I'm glad that you guys are here, whether you're here for the first time or whether you're here all the time, okay? Because sometimes we don't tell the people that come all the time that we're glad that you're here, but we are. Uh, we want you to feel welcome no matter who you are, no matter why you're here today. And uh, we've been in this process of taking a long look at Jesus, getting to know Jesus. And really, we've just started this uh, at the beginning of this year. Uh, but nobody can deny, no matter what you think of him today, when you're in this room, you may be super close to him, like he may like be right here with you, or you may just know about him, you may have questions about him. But no one can deny that his arrival changed the world. Like forever, for history, like all time. And we use his arrival actually as a marker in history. And so there are so many things that we can learn from that, but I, I think that it's more than learning. I think it's, it's something that, that needs to impact us and impact our hearts. And so we're working through the eyewitness accounts, the people that were there with him, that walked side by side with him, and then later on documented the things that they saw and the things that they heard. But then we're also uh, working through some of the testimonies of the people uh, that talked with the people that were closest to him. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all these guys are weighing in on what they saw, what they heard uh, directly from or about Jesus. And, of course, we also will reference Paul and some of those other guys uh, that had some context there as well with the guys that followed Jesus around. And so uh, we call him Jesus. They called him Yeshua, which in Hebrew means uh, the Lord saves or salvation. And that framework really is the foundation for everything that we need to understand. Uh, if we understand that he is salvation, uh, it's one of the many reasons that he should be wonderful to us. And so that's what we're exploring. So last week, I just want to catch you up really quick. If you've missed any of these, they're all online. You can check them out. But last week we learned that Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly parents, right, that they followed all of God's instructions to the letter when it came to his dedication, in the temple. And we learned that even the events surrounding his dedication uh, had some serious prophecy involved and some impact on his life. And so that episode, that whole thing, all ended with this scripture. This is Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Because that's how they would narrate it, like in a Jesus movie, right? So, and the child grew and became strong. Filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Probably with a better British accent than that. So that happened. And then all of a sudden we have this time jump. That's what I'm calling it. In the life of Jesus. And it spans this time uh, from when he was 40 days old to the age of 12. And this portion of history is what some people call the lost years. The lost years of Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have more details? about what happened there, like between 40 days and 12 years. That would be pretty cool. Like, was he the perfect child? I mean, he had brothers and sisters. That had to be a little bit maddening, right? I mean, if he never did anything wrong, James is always like, oh, man, I always get blamed for stuff. Well, James, it's because you did it, right? I mean, or were there foods that he refused to eat as like a small child? And if so, did he change them into foods that he liked better? These are the questions that I have. Did he constantly quote the Torah to his siblings when they jacked up? Have you ever thought about that? Because I know some of you guys do that to your brothers and sisters. And then how does one parent the Messiah, right? It's just like, would you question maybe some of your discipline methods and stuff? It's like, well, you know what? He's actually right. Right? I mean, it's like... We're actually going to get a glimpse into the parenting situation here today in the story. So, so often we want to know the story behind the story. And we kind of talked about this at the very beginning when we talked about origin stories, right? We love origin stories. Uh, and it seems lately that the story behind the story is all that Hollywood can give us. My case in point. If you are a child of the 70s or the 80s in the room, this is your golden era right now. These are your glory years, not when you were a child, but now because everything that you wanted in entertainment when you were a kid is happening now. You see, Hollywood and all these producers, they've discovered that we're very fond of nostalgia. 
And so they are offering as much up to us as possible in order to capitalize on it. But we don't care because we love it. Our wildest childhood dreams about movies and television shows and books and Broadway revivals, because I know many of you as children were interested in Broadway revivals. All of these things right now are coming true. So if you had a favorite movie or a TV show or whatever as a child, you can bet that if there's not a remake or a reboot happening right now, it's coming soon. I found one reference online that listed 121 different movies and television shows that are currently in production that are reboots or remakes of things that have already happened. Right? They're making a live-action version of The Lion King, people. With Donald Glover as Simba. And Beyonce as Nala. I'm looking forward to that, actually. One great example of this would be, of course, the kids in the room that love Star Wars. And you know this is my go-to, right? But we have Rogue One. It's not actually part of the Star Wars canon, but they shoehorned this thing in here. And it's basically the story about how they got the plan to the Death Star so that they could destroy it in the first real Star Wars movie, which was A New Hope, which is actually the fourth movie. Okay? So a story that we maybe didn't need, but there it is. Or how about this one? You may not even know that this exists yet because they've hardly advertised it, which makes me just a little bit worried. But this is a movie called Solo, and it's the whole backstory about Han Solo and how he becomes that roguish scoundrel that we all love so much, right? That charmer. So that's him right there in the front. And, of course, Donald Glover. What's up? This guy's like a media mogul already. Anyway, 12-year-old me would have been so excited about this time in life right now. Who am I kidding? 47-year-old me is really excited about this time in life, and I can actually afford to see movies. So, this is good. So, all of this stuff aside, we are almost 2,000 years removed from Jesus' day. And here's our challenge, guys. We have to project ourselves back across centuries of time and back to a culture and even to a language that's foreign to us and to our Western ways of thinking. And yet, as scholar and author David Biven states, before we can even begin to understand the magnificent and thrilling words of Jesus, that is exactly what we must do, right? And we've kind of been talking about this. So if you've been with us, uh, you get this, but I'm just trying to get everybody caught up here. So the next thing that Luke tells us in this story about, and I love it in the caption, it says, the boy Jesus, which is just funny to me. So the next thing that Luke tells us in this statement, it starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. And it says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And of course, the 12-year-old they're referring to there is Jesus. So Passover is simply this, guys. It is the retelling of the Exodus story. It's when God uh, intersected, really, with mankind, and he delivered his people from the bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right, in Egypt. And that story takes place in Exodus and also in Deuteronomy. Quick advertisement. Every other year, we celebrate Passover as a family together, as a church community. The off years, we actually encourage people to do that in their homes. But this is one of the years that we'll be doing that, and it's April 6th, I believe, that that's going to happen. So we'll have a sign-up form. It'll be delicious food, and we're actually going to do some things with it this year that are a little bit different. This never gets old. God wants us to retell this story over and over again, guys, because we also have been delivered from bondage. And there are so many cool things in this story uh, that we can kind of unpack and take home and put in our hearts that, that it's just way important. So uh, I invite everybody, whether you've experienced that with us before or not, this is kind of like one of those family things. It's kind of, you need to be here. You need to be here for this. And so more information about that uh, will be coming. But Passover is one of the three festivals that required a pilgrimage. And so what that means is people would go up to Jerusalem to observe this or to celebrate it in one way or another. So Nazareth is where they would have been traveling from. Nazareth to Jerusalem is about 70 miles. Now remember, we're not talking cars. They don't have a hyperloop to jump on. No mechanical things of any kind. They'd be lucky maybe if they had a mule or a camel. But most likely, this is everybody on foot. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. 
This was a pilgrimage that many people would join and follow together. And so throughout the life of Jesus, we see him and we see his family keeping these festivals and customs. And what's really interesting to me is that, you know, a lot of times people will de-emphasize the Jewishness of Jesus. Well, well, why don't they talk about it more in the Bible if that's such a big deal? They do all the time. And the fact that it was just a part of who they were... It would be like saying one of you, you know, oh, and he brushed his teeth every day. And like saying that over and over again. No, no, we know that's a part of what we do, at least hopefully for most of us, right? So it's just assumed. It's a part of what we do. It's our custom. And so the same is true here. We see them jumping in and doing all the things that good Jewish people would do. And so it's part of the natural rhythm of their lives. And so that leads me to think that we need to be aware of that too. What is the natural rhythm of your life? especially when it comes to God. Do you have one? Do you have something that's uh, built into your day, whether it's a connection of some kind with him? And multiple times in your day, do you have moments where you are specifically setting aside time in your daily rhythm to connect with him? It's important. It's a big deal because he wants that. He wants that community, that closeness. Uh, That's how he speaks to us. Does he hold a prominent place in your day? And to me, it's more than, you know, saying grace before the meal or throwing up that emergency flare player prayer, right? When something starts going wrong in your day, because we all have those. Oh, man, God, help me. Right. We're talking about being intentional about that. And so this was the thought that I had about it this week. When we intentionally make room for the Lord in the rhythms of our day, he will shape our intentions to make the day better. And that's truth right there, guys. And for those of you that have that rhythm or have had that rhythm in your life before, you know that this is truth because the days that you miss that, those days aren't as good. You feel like you're playing catch up for the rest of the day. At least I do. And so it's important for us to build that into our lives. And so uh, if you have questions about that, we have all kinds of ways we can help you uh, see One of the many fine folks that you have seen on stage or leading something, any of us can help you after services. So moving on, Luke, verse 43. I'll send it to you. Send me an email. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus, again, I just think that that's funny. It sounds like he's a sidekick or has a costume or something. The boy Jesus. Anyway, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Parents in the room, especially you mothers, have you ever lost your child in a store someplace else? It's okay. Raise your hand. Be brave. This, is not, this has nothing to do with your parenting. Over the course of four children in our lives, and I think the biggest story that I can remember is probably a Lily story, but I'm sure this has happened to Valerie and I. I'm one of eight kids, okay? And I know that it happened because I was the kid that got left sometimes, okay? I got left at church a couple of times, and I've I've told you those stories, but it was always about my parents thinking that one of my brothers and sisters who also could drive had taken me home. Not to mention that my dad was like, anytime, whatever he was at, like when it was over, he was gone. Like, he was up and he was out, okay? That's just the kind of dude that he was. And so, right, sometimes kids wander off. And back in Jesus' day, and even now in some parts of the world, when people will go on these pilgrimages like this, it was more than just the parents or just the family, but the whole neighborhood would actually pack up and go together. They would just hit the road. And one of the benefits, because we talk about all the bad things that the Romans did, one of the benefits that they actually brought is the Romans brought paved roads, many of which are still in use today, which is pretty amazing because our highway department lots of times seems to struggle to not be working on it at some point, right? So whatever they did there, they made amazing roads that are still in use. This would have been a well-known route. Okay, all of these routes would, especially the ones to Jerusalem, because it was a big city. And so you would have like, I mean, how excited do you get and how excited do your kids get when you're getting ready to go on a trip? Right. It's like we want to drive at night while they're sleeping because we know that it's going to make us insane if we have to be seven hours in this car with everybody. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? She's touching me. He's on my side of the 
the seat. There's a line here. Do not cross it. Like you're getting out tape, like trying to put it in between your kids. But we do. We get excited about this trip. Now imagine whole neighborhoods, friends and family and cousins and like all these people uh, walking this route to Jerusalem in anticipation of Passover. And for them, this would have been a big deal because you're talking about the folks from Nazareth heading to the big city with the best food saved for the Passover feast and the best wine and all of these things that they would have been looking forward to, things that you can't buy or get at home. And so as a result, people are probably carrying more money and more goods with them because they want to purchase things while they're in the big city. But we also know times were dangerous back then, so you had people who were looking for people carrying large sums of money so that they could take the money from them. Right? So that's why traveling in a big group of people like this, especially on a pilgrimage, was very, very important. There was safety in numbers. This is still true for us, guys. Who are you walking through life with right now? Where do you find your safety? And obviously, we find that in the Lord, but we also find that with His people. And I so love it. Like, I had planned, I was supposed to lead worship this week, but because I'd been sick... I'd ask Jeremy to step in. And when I saw his list of songs, I was looking at it, I was like, those are kind of weird songs. Those are some songs that we don't normally do. And so I'd even ask Valerie, I was like, I wonder what, like, why these are the songs that we're doing. And then I found out because this happened and things happened in the lives of my friends this week that are, we can't describe, like hard things. And so it makes me also wonder, when we're walking through life, the people that we're walking with, let me ask you this question. Who do you celebrate with? You've got to have celebrations for the wins. And who do you mourn with? Who's picking you up when you fall? Who are you leaning on when you can't make it? Your community, the people surrounding you right now, folks, are important. They're part of your journey. We see that over and over again later on when Jesus is talking about how important this is in addition to our families, our husbands, our wives, our brothers, our sisters, and those kinds of things. In fact, there are kind of a couple times that he says this is even more important in some cases. Nobody should be walking alone. When we get weary along the way, others are there. We have to lean on them. We have to encourage them. And listen, if that's you today, if you're in this room and you're alone, don't wait for the invite. Jump on the road. Grab somebody here. Tell them what's going on. We need each other. And the same is true, too. If you see someone alone, don't wait. Jump in. Relationships are one of the five things that God uses to help us grow. You cannot grow spiritually without connecting relationally. Love God, love others. Those two things are in tandem. They go hand in hand and there's a reason. It's because both are required. So pray together, pray for each other, and make use of this community that you have on this journey. So back to our story. If it seems weird to you that Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus... Right? Because he's going to a big city. You're probably thinking, well, why would they even let him out of their sight? Like, that's just weird to me. How did this even happen? You might be questioning their parent skills, parenting skills, but a few things that are different here. Jesus was a teenager at this point. And so back in that world, his life experiences and responsibility would have been a lot higher than probably most of our kids have at that age. Uh, He was probably working, at least learning a trade at this point. He was way in deep in his education, as we're going to learn pretty soon. He was helping out at home. And the world, in many ways, was just kind of a safer place in some regards. And so it wouldn't have been strange, is what I'm trying to say, for Mary and Joseph to not see Jesus for portions of the trip or even on the way home in a large caravan. Eh, He's probably with his cousins kind of thing, right? And so... Not to mention, something that's never changed with teenagers is they like to maybe not be with adults and hang out with their friends. And so that could have been what was happening too. So the first day's pilgrimage, and and I'm talking about why this whole thing took three days here, but 
The first, days, uh, first day of a pilgrimage was likely a shorter trip for a few reasons, but the main one being that if you'd forgotten anything or anyone, uh, you wouldn't have as far back to go to find that person. And so they would have probably traveled about 20 miles at this point. So after a day of traveling, what would happen is the families would gather together and they would have dinner. Hey, another Cheerio speaking, which... Um, the families would gather together and they would have dinner and then they would camp for the night. And so that's kind of how they would reconnect with everybody. And they would all kind of find their parents in the camp and they would camp there. And so um, that's when they discover that Jesus is missing. Yeshua! 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 I don't know his middle name, but I would use it right now if I did. <laughs> right? It's very easy to put yourself in this place. Verse 45 says, And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. What about you? When you feel like you can't find him, are you searching for him? Do you search for Jesus everywhere? Are you relentless in your pursuit? Do you use all of your senses And just rest at times, waiting to hear from him. Do we pursue him the way that his mother did, not giving up until we find him? Because you know what he promises? That if we seek him, that we're going to find him. But sometimes, he's silent. Let me just say this. He's not hiding from you. Don't ever feel like it's this game with God where he's hiding from you or he wants uh, to see how hard you want to work because that's not what this is about. God is generous. God loves you. But there are times that he's silent. And I think most of the time in my life when that's happened, it's because he's developing things in my heart. He wants to do some things. And sometimes he's just making stuff happen that we can't see, too. For him, it's like this, but time works a little differently here. He promises that when we seek him, we're going to find him. So Luke chapter 2, verse 46. So after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So the caravan had traveled a day. Then Mary and Joseph and friends, right, discover he's missing. They travel back a day, and then they spend the next day looking around Jerusalem for him. But I think about the trip back. That's what I think about. I think about that trip where everybody's kind of mad because you know that they probably didn't go by themselves. They had some folks from the neighborhood come with them. They're kind of mad, they're kind of frustrated, but at the same time, they're super concerned, and they're like looking in all the ditches. And like, I mean, think about the reality of this situation. And Mary's heart. Three days would have seemed like forever, right, moms? And I had this interesting thought as I was thinking about this specific thing. And this is completely speculation on my part. But it made me think, what about 21 years later? When they laid Jesus' body in that tomb and Mary went there to visit him. Three days later. And found him to be missing. As a mother, would this incident have come to mind? I kind of think it would have. So at this point, Mary and Joseph and crew, right, their friends, they are exasperated as they enter the temple to find Jesus there sitting among the elders. Jewish scholars, when they taught, they sat, and then they had semicircles of people that they were teaching that would sit around them, both hearing them and asking them questions. So there he sits, mom's all mad, and he's hanging out among them as a modest scholar. And so the rabbinical method of teaching, you need to know what this is because this is important later too. What they would do is they would state cases or they would state problems or like, this is an issue. 
And then they would challenge the students or the people that were there in attendance to respond to that and to basically uh, take proper application or interpretation of the law for that particular problem. So they say, well, such and such did this. And usually they would try to pick ones that were kind of confounding. And it would start debate. And so there might be three different opinions in the room, and lots of times they were all right, believe it or not. So it was pretty interesting. So that's how it would look. And we're going to see that a lot later in Jesus' ministry when people will come up and it says, try to trick him. But this is what they were doing. So teacher, tell us, what's the most important of the laws, right? This is what they were doing. Education and study, particularly of the scriptures, were the focus and the foundation of all Jewish life. They would use the scriptures to do basic education type stuff. And so uh, for a boy in the time of Jesus, from early childhood to adolescence, he would have been studying and committing vast quantities of material to memory. Because remember, they weren't carrying Bibles around. They didn't have mini scrolls, right, or iPads or anything. They had one, like, set. And sometimes it was, it was I mean, it was just, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible, okay? They had that, and they would share that among their village. And sometimes some of the other writings. So if it was something they needed to know, they had to memorize it. And so memorize it, they did. And I'm just going to throw this up here real quick. For a Jewish boy in Jesus' time... This comes from the Mishnah, and it was actually written later. But we can point back and say that this was likely true for his time, too. This had been passed on. So if he was five, he was fit for the Scripture. But we know, based on lots of other Scriptures, that children were learning Scripture in the Hebrew alphabet uh, as soon as their moms were swaddling them. They were already teaching them, okay? So they would learn... Scripture at five, ten years old, the Mishnah, which is basically interpretations of Scripture. Thirteen years old, they would learn how to apply the commandments. Fifteen years old, they would be looking at all of the rabbinic interpretations that had been passed down. Come 18, they were ready to be married. Twenty years old, they'd be pursuing their vocation. And then at 30 years old, they would have authority. They would be able to teach others. But here's the thing. Not just Jesus. We're talking about all of the kids, all of the boys of his day. Sorry, ladies, your track was a little bit different. Actually, I can't go into it. It's awesome, though. Don't feel slighted. You're way cooler. Anyway, so this is exactly what most of the other boys in his day were doing. But only the most exceptional students were the ones that went on to authority, went on to teach. And if we look at Jesus' life, if we just look at like the points, the high points of it, the main things, we see that it pretty much follows this. We'll learn more about that in the weeks ahead. So, Mary and Joseph enter the scene. They're all sweaty and frazzled, right? They find Jesus hanging out, listening to the teachings and rulings of some of the wisest men of his day. I don't have time to go into it. But you should research this because we're talking some heavy hitters in Judaism that would have been alive and probably there in that moment teaching him, which is the coolest thing in the world. I'd never even thought about it until I studied for this. But the wisest of the wise. And he wasn't just soaking this in. He wasn't just sitting there like a little kid, like starting to fall asleep. He was asking them questions. And they were good questions, too, because they were firing back answers and asking questions in return. This is something that we're going to see in Jesus' whole life. He was always engaged with people. And that should be a lesson for us, too. So, verse 48, we're almost done here. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, right? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Okay, so that is weird. What just happened here? He was surprised that they expected him to be anywhere else. The Passover festival was seven days. Some people would only go for a few and they would go home. I don't know what they did in this case. Scripture doesn't tell us. But what I imagine is that they 
you know, so far they've been following everything to the letter. I imagine that they hung around all seven days. And I imagine that every one of those seven days, Jesus was probably right here when he wasn't doing something Passover-related or to celebrate with his, with his parents. But his words are, I must be in my father's house. And I don't take that in the assumptive way, like, well, if we couldn't find you anywhere else, you must be in your father's house. I look at it as more of like him being compelled. I must be in my father's house. I mean, if you think about it, he's in Jerusalem. Like, this is the place. He doesn't get to hang out here that often. He's back in Nazareth, right? But this also shows this oneness that he had with his father. And there's an aspect of that that is supernatural. I mean, after all, he is the Messiah. But don't shortchange your opportunity because we also have this supernatural opportunity to connect with the father and to engage with his people. That's why we're here. When we worship together, this is a sacred thing. There are things that happen in that moment. It's not just singing songs. Every part of this is sacred. It's holy. When we gather in this room, we're saying, we set aside this time. We must be in our Father's house. So imagine this scene with Jesus sitting among the elders. We delight when we see a child that's a prodigy, right? So that's why things like Star Search and America's Got Talent are so kind of a big deal. You know, when you, the kid that's like way beyond their skill level at whatever they do, whether it's singing or playing the piano or that kid, that girl that did the puppets, did you see her? That was almost creepy. Anyway, these kids that have the skill level that's far beyond their years, there's something about that to us as people that's fascinating. Sometimes annoying, but mostly fascinating, okay? Just being honest. So if I were making a movie about this moment, here's what this movie would look like. So the scene is this. It's the first day. They just arrived in Jerusalem, and Jesus, like, books it over to the temple. And he starts to walk into the colonnade, and he sees all of the scholars. And they're there, and they're semicircles, and they're hanging out, and they're discussing, and they're debating. And so Jesus goes over to the corner, and he just starts to watch. And Rabbi Hillel, who would have been around a hundred something right here, sees him. And he sees like how engaged he is. Like he's soaking up every word. And so he says, you boy, what's your name? He says, Yeshua? Oh, Yeshua, come here. So Jesus comes over. What do you think about this matter? Who is right? Me or Shammai? Shammai was not the nice one, by the way. Hillel was the nice one. Who is right? And in that moment, Jesus steps up to give his ruling or his midrash or his thoughts on the matter that's at hand. And the maturity that he has in that statement, they're all just like, whoa. And then it's on because these scholars are delighted with this little kid from Nazareth who is able to go toe-to-toe with them on all of these heavy matters of the Torah and of the law and of the prophets. And they're listening to arguments and offering thoughts and defending interpretations and also challenging their own. And listen, everybody's still friends because that's how this works. And so he's like right in the middle of it. And then somebody's giving this animated defense. And then Mary comes into the colonnade and they're all like, right? And they turn. Where have you been? Right? I've always, I'm always, but I've heard this taught a couple times that Jesus' response is this zinger, right? It's like this. Well, didn't you know that I would be in the temple? That I would be in my father's house, Right? How many of you have ever heard that taught that way? I'm just curious. Is it just me? Okay, yeah, a few of us have. That's not what's happening here. Yeshua is legitimately surprised that they're concerned. He didn't want to upset anybody. He wasn't trying to do anything wrong. 
And however he communicated this to his mother, Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but she didn't get what he said. In fact, it says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So I don't know what that was, if it was like another bit of knowledge and the rest of the like rabbis went, <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that something's missed here. He's legitimately surprised. And there's this sense that he's beginning to understand his mission, but many of the other people around him are not. Be that as it, as it is. His parents didn't get it at this point, and we have history on our side, so I get that. But even after the miraculous birth, the visitations from angels, a prophetic blessing when he's dedicated, and a list of a whole other bunch of events that were out of the ordinary, something about this, his parents don't quite understand what he's saying. They didn't fully get what was happening, and yet they enter and interrupt this lively discourse. At least I imagine it to be pretty lively. And so... But yet we see something is going on because she treasures all these things in her heart. So I don't completely get that. I don't know what to tell you um, other than study harder. But even so, Luke tells us this, and I think that this is the most important part of the story today. Jesus went home with them, and he was submissive to them. Don't worry, kids. I'm not preaching this at you, okay? That's not the point. This isn't a parenting message. (laughs) Oh, that was awesome. This is a lesson for all of us. How about that one? (laughs) I love you. You're awesome. So, Jesus says goodbye to this elite group of scholars that he was hanging out with. And he submits himself to the authority of his parents. I can't imagine how hard that might have been for him. We're talking about Yeshua, salvation. We're talking about the one who gives us power and authority in his name to heal. And yet, he submits to the will of his parents. But here's the deal. His whole mission was submission. John, chapter 6, verse 38. And these are Jesus' words. Here's what he says. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So anytime we see Jesus doing something, we have to understand that it's always the will of the one that sent him, the Father. And then Matthew tells us about a time later on when Jesus is in the garden. And most of us know this story. But he's wrestling with his destiny. He now understands what's about to happen to him. He knows. So Matthew tells us, verse 39 in chapter 26 of his account, he says, And going a little farther, farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed this same prayer, guys, right here in Matthew 26, three different times. And that's just what we have an accounting of. I mean, who knows how many times he prayed it, but specifically tells us that he prayed this prayer. Father, if you can do this any other way, please do it. But, or nevertheless, possibly the coolest word in the Bible right there. Nevertheless. Not as I will, but as you will. The fact that he prayed for something three times and didn't get his prayer answered, hopefully encourages you today. And here's why I say that. This wasn't about his lack of faith, right? I mean, he was the Messiah. He kind of got it. 
It wasn't that he asked for the wrong thing. This was a perfectly acceptable prayer. Jesus submits to the will of the Father because God is God. And he knows what is best for all of us in the grand plan of the story that he is writing. Because it's all about him. Every bit of it. And so sometimes your will be done, Father, is the best prayer we got, guys. In fact, I would suggest that that's always the best prayer we got. So as a result, Jesus submitted himself in this part of the story to be taken away, beaten, and nailed to a stake for you and for me. He submitted. And likewise, Paul wrote that because of our love for Jesus and because of his example, that we should be submitted to each other In the same way. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, yes, I know that a lot of the context here in Ephesians is about marriage. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But there's a bigger context. He's talking about submission to one another. This isn't wives submitting only to husbands or husbands only submitting to wives. But everybody submitting to each other the way that Jesus submitted. So what does that look like for us? Let's talk about it in the church context as a community. There's one scripture that challenges us to outdo one another at love. Basically make life this huge contest to see who can be the best at loving people. I want in. That's what I want this to look like. That's what this should be. People falling all over themselves loving people. No matter what it looks like. No matter what it costs us. Outdo each other in love. What about us as married people? And listen, I'm married. I'm preaching this sermon and I have to go home and live it right afterwards, okay? I get it. When problems arise in marriage, most of the time, and I'm speaking from my own experience, the reason that I have problems in marriage is because I'm selfish. It's because I focus on what I want. I focus on what I need. And when I'm focusing on myself, I'm not focusing on Jesus, which is supposed to be the center of my marriage. And really the model for the whole thing, right? If we go back to Ephesians, husbands, we're supposed to love our wives the way that Jesus loved the church. What did he do? Submitted. Gave up everything. I know probably every guy in this room, without a shadow of doubt, if your wife was in harm's way, if somebody had a gun pointed at her, you would step right in front of that and you would take that bullet. Yeah, I would die for my wife. I have no doubt about that. You guys are brave. But would you be willing to live for your wife and submit and love her the way that Jesus loved the church? It should be the model. So if you're married in this room today, here's something that you can try. And you know what? This doesn't even take both partners. Your husband or your wife may not be here. This is something that you can try. Have a contest with your spouse to see who can outdo the other with love. And I'm not, guys, just talking physically speaking. just want to be clear about that. I'm saying practical ways. Like when she says, hey, will you take out the trash? I was like, oh, my goodness. How about, yeah, absolutely. Or maybe even trying to notice, and this is a personal challenge, trying to actually notice the problem and deal with it before she has to say something. <laughs> I'm just being real, guys. I don't dance. This is it. This is all I got. Okay, I do dance. You don't want to see it. <laughs> Who can submit the most? Who can outdo the other in love? Some of you guys are competitive. This could get fun. In church, it's a challenge for you too. I just came up with a new DC Wow idea. The outdoing another one another with love DC Wow. 
What could that look like? What if everybody brought it all to the table and said, today we're going to see who could do the craziest thing loving somebody else that's legal. (laughs) I have to tell some of you guys. Sorry. What if that were a DC Wow? I mean, I love our DC Wows. They're fantastic. And where we go out and we serve people outside the walls of this church and the thing like we, John read that letter from, that stuff, I love it. It makes my heart happy. But it's like... What if you had one where you were just simply all trying to outdo each other with love, and then we came back and we were all talking about it, and you actually got a chance to brag in church? When does that happen? Because Paul says we can brag when we're bragging on Jesus and what he's done. Submission is hard. I realize that. But it's what we're challenged to do. We're challenged to be, whether that's maybe thinking that we're right even sometimes and not talking about it. That might be hard too. So, Jesus is our example. We need to submit to one another out of reverence to him. He didn't just tell us to do it right. He actually lived it out first. So, that's pretty big. We wrap it up with this today. And it's kind of like a bookend to that first one. Verse 52 And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The people were amazed by him, but here it tells us that that wasn't the high point of his growth. It tells us that he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature. And that means as brilliant as those scholars were in that moment that surrounded him, Jesus actually grew in wisdom. Jesus actually grew in knowledge. And of course, he grew up too, right? Because he's just 12 at this point. But then also in favor with God and man. Somewhere along the line, guys, I feel like we've been sold, if you've been a believer for very long, we've been sold maybe this false bill of goods thinking that If people like us, like people outside the church, that we must not be doing a very good job as Christians. And people will, you know, they like to point back to the verse and say, well, you know, Jesus said the world would hate us and different things like that. And I'm not denying that that's true. I mean, I think that we do see those kinds of things more and more in the media, the level of tolerance for beliefs that don't tow whatever the party line happens to be in that moment that tolerance level is going down. So that's not what I'm talking about. But I think we're kind of pre-programmed sometimes to think that I'm just going to kind of whirl through life like a pinball and run into people because ultimately the world's going to hate me anyway. And that may seem like a weird thought to you. I hope it's a weird thought to you. But somewhere along the line, it seems like we've been told that you're not going to have any friends that aren't Christians. But what we see here in this verse is that he found favor with God and man. He didn't compromise anything. And we see that later in his life that the people were glad to hear him. He didn't compromise. He, he was who he was. He said what he thought. He said what he felt was right. What he knew was right. And yet people still loved him. Why? Because he was submitted. Because he loved people practically. Because he didn't just say things, he did things. And when he did say things, he didn't do things that contradicted the things that he said. He never compromised what he stood for, but he also put his money where his mouth was. He didn't just say things, he did them. And the people loved him. So when we seek to follow Jesus and submit to his will and to one another, guys, it should make us better. It should. You'll be better husbands if you do this. I promise. You'll be better wives if you do this. I promise. You'll be better parents, better bosses, better employees, better brothers, sisters, better people if you do this. Better disciples, right? That's what we're supposed to be if you do this. 
one step, <laughs> one step direction, submitting to others in love. Would you bow your hearts with me? Father God, we love you and we thank you for your son. I can never thank you enough for the gift that you've given us. But we also thank you that you didn't just like throw him down here and not leave any trail or any evidence or any story, but that you gave us so much so that we can understand uh, what you want from us. As you reveal yourself in your word and as you revealed yourself ultimately through your son. We learn how loving of a God you, you are and that you just challenge us and call us to surrender, to submit, to accept the salvation that you freely offer us and then to get up and follow. And it may sound simple, God, but we know that sometimes it's not. So, Father, I just pray that this church would be a place where love is known, God. I thank you that even in our community already, there are people out there that are saying good things about you because of what you've used this congregation to do. And I pray that that would continue, God. I pray that there will be so many good things happening, not just here, God, but in the other churches in this city. Journey Church, right across the street, our brothers and sisters there. Second Baptist Church, Pleasant Valley Church, all of them, God, no matter how big, how small, that you would be doing so many good things. There would be so many people outdoing each other with love that your name would be made famous in this city and the surrounding era. That this whole area, God, that everybody would be like, I don't know what's going on in your neighborhood, but all I know is I, I, don't, I don't know about God or that whole thing necessarily. But it's hard to deny what he's doing through his people. I pray that our love for you and for each other would make you irresistible. And God, for those that are here today that are maybe on this path and they feel like they're alone or they've struggled, I pray that there would just be some cool things that would happen in this room today afterward that you would draw people together and that you would draw them to you in that process. Help us to lift up our brothers and sisters and walk alongside them, God. And for the ones that aren't here today that are struggling with sickness or uh, hard things or challenges in their lives or in their families, God, I pray that you would meet them right where they're at. We love you and we thank you. And all of these things in the name and the authority of your son, Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.